Are you, um, have you, have you gone to your closet and gotten your leather jacket and your cowboy boots for this one? Oh yeah, I've got my leather jacket, got my cowboy boots. Uh, have you turned your chair around to sit in a serious, cool guy kind of way? <laughs> I've already written, I'm a marine on the chalkboard. In perfect cursive. Um, <laughs> have you listened to Gangsta's Paradise seven to ten times today? Uh, actually, what I've done is I, I will listen to Gangster's Paradise, then I'll listen to Mr. Tambourine Man, then back to Gangster's Paradise. I'm like doing a half and half. And you said to yourself, huh, that's poetry. <laughs> yeah, these, these two, they're actually one and the same. Weird, I never would have thought that. Hello, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven by your favorite teachers. We'll talk about them in a moment. Yeah. Greatest performance of your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. Oh man, hat flipped backwards, sitting on the, the chair backwards. I'm cool teacher Patrick Remian. If you want to win over the class... You have to win over Patrick. Welcome to the Academy. (laughs) Oh, boy. We got some good ones this week. We are returning Mm. this week to our sub-series, A Visionary Alliance, the Don Simpson-Jerry Bruckheimer digression part two, with their other two films from their banner year, 1995, Mm. Bad Boys and Dangerous Minds. It was a banner year for Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer between these two and Crimson Tide. All major hits. Yeah, the, the, the Simpsons-Bruckheimer vibe is back, folks. They are in full swing. In full swing. And, you know, at the time, though, heading into this banner year, it had been a kind of a quiet few years for them. They had, as, we, as we remember when we left off, they had left their Paramount deal, the Visionary Alliance with Paramount had not lasted long. And they were um, immediately snatched up by their old friends, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, men cut from the same cloth at Disney. And but, you know, at Disney, Disney was a different place. They were p- pinching pennies a little bit more at that time. They're a little more family-oriented than mm-hmm. Simpson and Bruckheimer, especially a character like Don Simpson. <laughs> yeah, they were They were like, I don't know if Don Simpson fits in the meld of Toy Story and Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the Beauty and the Beast, if you will. Um, oh, yeah. Don Simpson. I'll start us off with just a vision of Don Simpson. He said, talking to a friend in February of 1987 at his home in Stone Canyon. Take a look at that. I just had it framed. As he's doing lines of cocaine, he points to to, uh, his visitor's eyes to on the wall, a framed photocopy of a check from Paramount Picture Corporation made out in Simpson's name. The check was for $1 million On, on the wall next to it. Another $1 million check. On the wall below that, a $2 million check. Not too fucking shabby, huh? 
In case you didn't know, here was the evidence. Don Simpson was a very, very successful movie producer. <laughs> this is a guy that needs to go through Scrooge. He needs to be visited by like ghosts at night. Yeah, this is why something like A Christmas Carol was written. And what Christmas Carol also realizes, too, is that Ebenezer Scrooge is a sad, lonely man who needs to be friends with like the Cratchit family. <laughs> like... Yeah, he needs, yeah. Oh man, you could do a really grim uh Brookheimer Christmas. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to go. And there. so during the time period in that they moved over to Disney, they developed a lot of different properties. But mm-hmm. they were trying to find they they produced nothing for the first two years there. And for two guys like Bruckheimer and Simpson, workaholics, makers, Hollywood players. Two years is a damn lifetime. And they were getting hot. They are getting hot in their seat. And they were seeing rivals like Joel Silver have hit with the Lethal Weapon series. Oh, <laughs> I'm just Warner Brothers. Oh, I'm, no. I'm imagining the, uh, the Anchorman-esque, like, you know, Will Ferrell and Wes Mantooth, how they would, like, constantly speed each other. Like, yeah. They both have their little clicks, and they're always waiting to start a started a little fighter tussle absolutely they acquired material rapidly and expected to begin production soon on any number of films um a couple of these films included the dennis leary black comedy the ref oh. and the dana carvey john lovitz action comedy bad boys what's that you say dana carvey john lovitz garth and the critic uh, by summer of 93, the ref went into production. For Bad Boys, though, they failed and were not coming any close. Bad Boys was meant to be a raucous, irreverent action comedy designed for Saturday Night Live veterans Lovitz and Car- Carvey. Uh, a lot of arguments over salary and uh, actor's window as well. Um, so uh, There was a, several sources indicated that in his eagerness to seal the Carvey and Lovitz deal... Simpson arranged for a wild two-day trip to Vegas. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. Not know what exactly occurred, but by the time the weekend was over, let's say the movie was two. According to us who are intimate with Simpson, let's just say Don scared the shit out of Dana Carvey and the deal was off. <laughs> Dana Carvey. And every, every time you ever hear about Dana Carvey, um, workmanlike family man. Yeah, normal like, guy. Like, for a guy in that era of Saturday Night Live, pretty normal guy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, his, like, his eccentricities only, they stop once the film, the filming stopped for the most part. Yeah, and like he even thought like Mike Myers drove him up the wall with his eccentricities, let alone Don Simpson. Oh man, yeah, wow. So that's and, like um, <laughs> So according to another source, even before the Vegas week of the relationship between the star producers Rocky, um, their personalities are supplementary, the source said. Carvey is a shy, twerpy little nerd with a lot of hostility. The only way to deal with him is sit him on the couch and let him take over and start performing. You have to be the audience. Well, Don Simpson was never the audience. <laughs> he Ooh. dominated, and Carvey felt intimidated by him. Interesting. I'm going to add another wrinkle to this, too, because I was, like, curious, because I-, I thought about there's another movie that John Lovitz and Dana Carvey starred in. Yes. And it's Trapped in Paradise. 
with uh, who, Nick Cage, right? Yeah, and know who fucking directed Drafted Paradise? George Gallo. <gasps> oh. Which came out in 1994. That's another because wrinkle. As we know, the Bad Boy script started its life as a script by George Gallo. Wow. Together. Hollywood. Hollywood, Hollywood, right? There's yes. 10 guys. <laughs> 10 guys. It's Peter Carvey, George Gallo. George Gallo, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> and of course, because after George Gallo's script was written, naturally. James Toback was brought in to rewrite. <laughs> James, James Toback is the worst person in Hollywood. And if you're interested in James Toback, you're, it's a, it, well, you're welcome to go look up some of his uh, lifestyle choices. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just say he might be the worst guy in Hollywood. And uh, no surprise that he was a running buddy to Don Simpson. Then... David Milch was brought in to rewrite the script. David Milch, of course, bad boy of television, NYPD Blue, and God-tier work on Deadwood. Um, Mr. uh, Luck? Mr. Luck, a man who also um, actively admits to gambling his entire NYPD Blue fortune away on horse racing. Yeah, it's almost like the the, the HBO drama Luck was And he Really interesting, he just put out a memoir that I'm dying to read. Because he, um, he unfortunately has Alzheimer's, so basically this memoir is going to be his last kind of public statement. And one of the most interesting minds in entertainment. <laughs> I mean, like, he, like, went to, I think he was at, like, Yale, and his mentor was Robert Penn Warren, who wrote um, all, all the King's Men. <laughs> like, a true, like, literary man. Way better than most people, way more intelligent than most people in Hollywood. He is but like one of the most troubled too. Oh yeah, he's like one of the like re- like few like not only interesting and smart but like literate TV yes. guys. Like he's like yeah. very like well from you know watch Deadwood. Yeah, even like John from Cincinnati, which is like yeah. I would describe that as a noble failure, but it's fucking fascinating. But uh, basically. They knew they had a window as well because simultaneously, Paramount, their old friends, the part of the Visionary Alliance. Boy, you know what they had in mind? Wayne's World 2. <laughs> and guess who needs to be in Wayne's World 2? Data Carvey. So oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they, had to, they had to rush, rush, rush. They did not make it in time. Dana, of course, got booked for Wayne's World 2. And uh, the project considered dead. Uh, Don Simpson. Hey, in the long run, we may end up doing what I did on Beverly Hills Cop and take it black. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I know uh, that's bad. That's not the right way to say that. That is not the right, that I did not say that myself. That is, no. um. No, not a Don. That was a Don Simpson. That was a, That was Don Simpson. Not a Don According to Mark Canton, head of Columbia Pictures at the time, it was he who conceived the idea of casting black actors in Bad Boys because no one will let anyone have any full credit for any idea in no. Hollywood. <laughs> Everyone I'm has to have stud, the finger in the pie. I'm like Cokefield John Peters didn't burst through the door and claim credit for this. God, like a fucking... Like, um, like, like Lou, Lou Ferrigno is the Hulk. Like, I did this. So Canton told Bruckheimer, if you can get it out from Disney, we'll make it with you in a more interesting way. And um, 
Katzenberg got wind of it and asked Canton, why do you want to buy this? It's a piece of shit. Jesus Christ. And no, I love or hate Katzenberg. At the very least, he is to the point. <laughs> Canton thought the same, but Canton had a gleam in his eye that perhaps um, fun hip-hop star and television sensation Will Smith may have more up his up his sleeve as a superstar. Yeah. Same goes for for stand incendiary stand-up comic and television show of the titular Martin Ooh. Martin Lawrence. They want to keep the buck cut cost down at 22 million. They uh their parent company were like this will only make 14 million because there historically there was a very racist belief that movies of people with people of color in them did not travel internationally it is so crazy that like at this point we've already had like wesley snipes and danzel washington you know they were in films that have done relatively well at this yes. point right very, so, like, it, yeah. very charismatic very charismatic big stars yeah and people that are popular like you know snipes was popular everywhere like yes I don't ex- know. yeah and yeah. as they were as they were working it out um they uh and Katzenberg was very weary of the costs of bad boys because Ooh. bad boys on paper was going to be a big action blockbuster uh mm. he told them to focus on the ref they did efficiently the ref though did well critically and is actually quite an interesting very savage dark satire satirical comedy did not perform financially uh we're mm. not we have not I don't think we're going to cover the ref, but, um, you know, that's going to do like a, like a Ted Demi, like one off at some yeah. point. Interesting. Like, another interesting fig- another interesting figure as yeah. well. Part of that universe. And so they were a little more unconcerned. So they had, in addition to bad boys, they were developing further films such as Dharma blue, an original idea Simpson had concocted thriller about the federal government's 40 year cover up of UFOs. Hmm. How much would you like to bet that people were regaled at three in the morning regularly by a Coke fueled Don Simpson discussing UFO conspiracy God, theory? Like, like a fear in his eyes. He's sweaty. He's only yes. wearing like an undershirt. Just like, yeah, a no, it's no real. Pants. He's in no pants. Way, no you know, pants. yeah, he it's, has a gun. It, yeah, yeah, it, it's very easy to picture. Yeah, uh, he had bought a book called Out There by former New York Times reporter Harold Bloom about the possibility of UFOs. He had also approached superstar screenwriting team John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion to what? work on the project because no. uh, they were frustrated with Disney with a script that they were working on called Up Close and Personal which ended up being released with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer just a few years later because there are only it... 15 people in Hollywood <laughs> you look at every movie you look at you watch Guardians of the Galaxy you think that's Chris Pratt no that's Dana Carvey <laughs> they um they they felt that um you know, Didion had done worked well, and they thought they found him agreeable. But they were also so like, I mean, you know, those two above mm-hmm. it all intellectuals who weren't gonna, they weren't insecure enough in their state in life to let this asshole 
steamroll them like yeah. everyone else in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, John Dinian a little more knowing of this time. <laughs> yeah, and they they um and they were just like, huh, all right, whatever. And um they 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 went back and forth with him as a madman. They um from screaming memos to screaming a major major movie one of the biggest movies ever about dharma blue tons of his insane notes and then um then he disappeared months later writers received a call from brockheimer told them that filmmakers had read the memo and found it extremely interesting know that the writers had made a major contribution to the project and they would now be paid in their full efforts and then Hun hung up the phone and said to didion we just got fired <laughs> <laughs> um, later retitled Zone of Silence as of May 24th, 1995, less than eight months before his death, Simpson was still working on the project. Ooh. Has never to this day seen the light of day. And Didion and Dunn never spoke to Simpson or Bruckheimer ever again after yeah, that. Yeah, you know, probably a good choice. But they, they found a way by 1994 in anticipation of an April 7th, 1995 release date, they finally went into production with Bad Boys. With the aforementioned Will Smith and Martin Lawrence playing the titular boys. The film is also incredibly noteworthy because it is the feature film debut of Michael Bay. The man who would take the flag from the RSA Associates guys of the 80s and take it to its perhaps natural conclusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, action packed, very stupid conclusion. If, if you thought that Ridley and Tony and Adrian Line and the rest of the gang were accused of style over substance, well, you have not met Michael Bay. <laughs> he watched Flashdance and we're like, what is this? The Brothers Karamazov? Yeah, a little boring for Michael Bay. Uh, born February 17th, 1965, making him 57 years young in the city of Los Angeles. There was a really fascinating. So Michael Bay was adopted by his parents, Harriet, a bookstore owner and child psychiatrist and Jim, a CPA. There is... Uh, so, like I mentioned, he was adoptive, adopted. There was a long-standing rumor that his actual father was legendary filmmaker John Frankenheimer. No, that was for years. It's and I I think it's been debunked, but what a fascinating rumor, nonetheless. Inter he, it is interesting. He um. Went to the exclusive Crossroads School in Santa Monica and ended up going to college in Wesleyan University. It's like Ohio, right? Yeah. Uh, that one is in uh, Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Connecticut. It's uh, Connecticut. one of those like highbrow liberal arts schools that kind of has a cooler vibe than the I. It's not as like pretentious as the Ivies, but basically similar <laughs> kind of deal. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then he also, for graduate work, went to Arts Arts Center College of Design in Pasadena. Uh, okay. He did. He majored in English and film at Wesleyan. Uh, I had a friend who, when in high school, we we were, you know, burgeoning film fans and stuff like that. And he was always really impressed because he heard a story that 
you know, everyone makes these like short films about like their childhood trauma or their dad or something like that when they're in film school. <laughs> It's their like thesis project. Yeah. <laughs> there was also my friend, and I never confirmed this enough. But my friend told me that uh, Michael Bay's was just a Porsche taking turns really fast. <laughs> hey, hell yeah! Which That's... not a big surprise there. Yeah, hey, uh, I mean that is part of his charm. He is not an introspective man. Shortly thereafter, Michael Bay began work at Propaganda Films, and if RSA Associates was the breeding ground of the directorial voices of the late 70s and 80s, then my friends, Propaganda Films was the breeding ground of the directors of the 1990s. Founded by Steve Golan, who went on to be the CEO of Anonymous Content, where you still see them on stuff today, along with um, an Icelandic producer, um who i i apologize i'm not going to um i'm just not going to you can look it up folks i'm not going to give it a go i will butcher the shit out of that that's a hard (laughs) language that's that's like that's even worse than welsh (laughs) along with uh directors nigel dick who went on to direct the baby one more time and oops i did it again music videos for britney spears as well as the do they know it's christmas video um and dominic cena who Directed California, Gone in 60 Seconds, Swordfish, and of course, co-founder David Fincher, who we have talked, who we talked about Nary a few weeks ago. This, this is fucking fascinating. Now we're like connecting these two eras of film together. This is like the this is like the this is like the the silver skin, the cartilage that connects these two eras. <laughs> and at one point, they were directing, give or take, um somewhere between 70 to 80% of the music videos that were released in this era. And if the commercials of RSA kind of defined their chic aesthetic, it was music videos, of course, in the 80s and 90s that defined the aesthetic of the notable directors who worked with propaganda films, Michael Bay, David Fincher, Antoine Fuqua, Michelle Gondry, Jesus. Jones, David Lynch, <laughs> Michael Moore, Alex Proyas, <laughs> Wait, Mark Romanek, Dominic Cena, uh, Zack Snyder, Simon no. West, and Gore Verbinski. The uh, basically, if they have made a blockbuster, if a blockbuster film was made prior to 2010, between the years, like say 1990 to 2010, these. This crew was the where this this was the breeding ground. I'm, of, I'm still shocked yes. by yeah. I'm still shocked by Michael Mo- like in between Roger and me. He was directing like may have, may have done those Rage Against the Machine videos under the propaganda oh. banner or propaganda oh, uh, propaganda banner. Um, but regardless, this is a this is a real connector to the two eras between Scott Scott and what was to come up until basically. The arrival of um, John Favreau's Iron Man, which I would argue is the demarcation line of kind of the end of this era. Man, would yeah. you maybe Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, the year before yeah, that, or the, that time period? But one of those, yeah. basically, those two films kind of begin the process of getting away uh, from these kind of. Um, 
aggressive macho music video admin mm -hmm. to a far more genial company man or yeah. and woman <laughs> company man and woman company, uh, company folks yeah company but, person uh, yeah. um kind of thing but obviously michael bay is arguably the most successful out of this entire batch of incredibly successful filmmakers yep and his big thing that kind of put him on the map he started doing videos he started doing commercials he did much like david fincher's smoking fetus put oh, yeah. him on the map michael bay did the uh aaron burr got milk commercial oh wow where the guy's trying to answer the question and he has a cookie in his mouth and he can't and he needs milk stupid highly memorable <laughs> yeah, that is incredibly god mud he, he is just like i don't know he's kind of like something about michael bay he is like he just takes it to the next level it's like if tony scott was mcdonald's michael bay is carl's jr like, yeah and it, it and the it is um he just takes it next level and he isn't trying he is so unapologetic mm. about his thing and what he is into for better or worse and that's what kind of makes him the key art you know and we'll, this this phrase will come up again he is the key vulgar auteur yep he and perhaps uh zack snyder <laughs> perhaps uh, no, i think he's like because like but he is the he's kind of the epitome of it yeah and he's the, the ones who the kind of predecessor to him in the vulgar tour would be tony scott Mm -hmm. and john carpenter and michael mann i, I think, up there oh for sure but i think like i don't know michael bay is like the actual he's the only one of these people that's like he's the vulgar one he's like like Zack snyder like is in some ways very anodyne in comparison to well i think uh it also goes with um i think that both michael bay and Zack snyder despite perhaps not even being so are conservatives in their mm -hmm. filmmaking, that is true. Conservatives as artists, I don't know as people, but as artists, I think so because they both yearn for very like masculine, upfront morality, especially mm -hmm. Zack Snyder. Oh yeah, he's black and white. Yeah, I mean he's like vulgar and like I guess like that, like in that basic sense of the word. But Whereas, I think like, my... like Michael Bay's into like babes in the military. Yeah, he's puerile. Like, there's a yeah. puerileness to him that none of the other guys can even touch. And in some ways, there's, like, a beauty to Because it's so, like, it is just so basic. He is yeah. just, like, he is, like, in, at his heart, he's, like, the weird uncle with just a, he's at the, he works at, like, the car shop, and he just has a big titted lady on a wall Yeah, he's somewhere. got, like, a naked calendars in his office, and he, he's definitely the first guy to give you a beer. Yes, okay. he's, like, so the original bad uncle. Yeah, and I think, like, when he oversteps, and I think we're going to, you know, this is a movie that's going to come up again. Like, when he tried for prestige mm -hmm. in the film Pearl Harbor. Oh, no, could I do can't. I don't want to watch that movie. I don't want to, but it is on the people yeah. behind the podcast curtain, folks. It's on the list. <laughs> oh, no. we got to go to the Baywatch. <laughs> in, order, in order to be thorough in our project and i always want to call this how did we get here like why it, when it comes to hollywood blockbusters 
like in a way, like how did we get here? We are tracking this journey. So Michael Bay coming off of hot, hot shit music videos, mm-hmm. Victoria's Secret ads, and got milk commercials. God, that's perfect. Is that's our God. man for the job. And really kind of is part of this next stage because when we get into the other directors Jerry Bruckheimer continuously hired, they all came from this school afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like Con Air and Gone in 60 Seconds. I'm not, I would not be the first person to say I thought they could have been directed by Michael Bay based on the results of them. Like oh, the Bay aesthetic. Sure. And I almost wonder because upon meeting Bay, this is heading toward the end of the visionary alliance with Don Simpson. Bay gave the creative juice to the workmanlike competency of Jerry Bruckheimer and became mm-hmm. the new partner, basically. That a much more controllable partner <laughs> than Don Simpson. <laughs> they, so they go into production on Bad Boys with Will Smith, with um Martin Lawrence, also in the cast, Taya Leone, uh Tiki um Oh Jesus, Don. That's a hard one. I he's a great actor. We saw him in fourteen ninety-two as well. Um and gave a few wrecks on some of his early French work. Uh Teresa Randall returns to the show in yet another film. Yay. I noticed in the Ebert's review, he confused Teresa Randall with the woman who plays the uh, sex worker who's killed. And I was like, Ebert. Ebert, come do your on homework. Now. Uh, yeah, that's a different. Let's Karen Alexander, Ebert. Nice yeah, try. Please, Ebert. Uh, the great Joe Pantoliano <sighs> is in the mix. Mark Helgenberger, uh, Nestor Serrano, and Julio Oscar Machoso play rival Detective Sanchez and Ruiz. Machoso, of course, was also on board. The White Squall. He was... Oh, yeah! <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> there's, like, a lot of, like... Because, like, we talked about, like, yeah, because there's Anna Thompson. She was in, uh... Wasn't she in uh, True Romance? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Kim Coates was in The Last Boy Scout. <laughs> yes! <laughs> uh, playing the same movie. character, seemingly. <laughs> And I hate my, but like he was, he's so funny in, in his one scene in this movie. <laughs> like I'm a bad stint. Yeah, and I suck. <laughs> and uh, two princes, spin doc, cue the spin doctors. Um, yes. Kevin Corrigan, always, every move, anytime he's in something, I'm like, man, you love to see him. He's just a great spice. He just adds so to the movie. And we'll movie. see him again. He's going to yeah. be back. This he this is young Kevin Corrigan, the the Scott brothers go back to that well a little bit more because they saw they saw it, and <laughs> yeah. the wonderful Michael Imperioli as JoJo, uh, you love to see him. You love to see it. Uh in classic Simpson Bruckheimer fashion, it's really well cast. Everybody's great yeah. and fun. Yep. Oh, it. can I say one more? Yeah. Uh Mark McCauley from Passenger Fifty Seven. Oh yeah, he's one of the guys. He's like a big. He has a good. Yeah. Another. And, oh my god! One. Look at his. Yeah, his filmography is nuts because you. He's like he, military guy, or goon. He's always available. Yeah, like okay. it. You know, cast cast him, just nonstop. He's in um fair game. The um, 
uh, ill-fated Cindy Crawford star vehicle that came out in 1995 as well. Man, that might that I, saw cli- I saw a clip from on one of the action Twitters, action movie clip Twitters that I follow. <laughs> and I was like, there's like cars blowing up and Billy Baldwin's jumping from flaming car to flaming car in a freeway chase. And I was like, what did we have? We really had something here. Like even in the worst movies, there's still p- stunt people doing insane stunts nonstop. And yeah. like, it seems exciting and fun. The return meme, yeah, that's that's. There's some truth to it. Yeah, we we need to go back. We need to go back, folks. We need to. We need the, to go... um, the story, the story by credit to George Gallo. Screenplay credits to Michael Berry, Jim Mulholland, and Doug Richardson. Um, what music were they writing. Music by Mark Mencina. So mm. we will continue to cover this, and maybe on the Rock episode, we'll go deeper into. The world of Hans Zimmer. So, Mark Mancina, who also scored Speed, Twister, Training Day, um, came out of the... Basically, he worked alongside the Hans Zimmer school Mm -hmm. of composers. Hans Zimmer has a place in Santa Monica that basically is his like um his um home base and it's called remote control productions inc now it's been which he formed in 1989 and get this composers who have worked who are working or have worked with Hans Zimmer remote control productions include Lauren Balfi Tyler Bates um, wow, Lisa Gerard, Harold Faltermeyer, Harry Gregson Williams, Rupert Ooh. Gregson Williams, James Newton Howard, Henry Jackman, Mark Mancina, Trevor Morris, Mark Mothersbaugh, Trevor Rabin, um, Benjamin Walfish, and down the line. Now, oh, Mark Streitenfeld, we should mention him too. Uh, now, what do all those names are? Essentially, the people who have continuously scored action and suspense movies for the last 30 years. Now, there is a rumor that basically they all worked for Hans Zimmer throughout his entire career and most served as ghostwriters to Hans Zimmer, with Hans Zimmer taking full credit. If you watch the credits, additional compositions by is in almost every one of Hans Zimmer's movies. With one of these people usually listed. That's now, interesting. I'm not one. I think the proof is in the pudding. They've created a lot of interesting stuff. And mm-hmm. I was I watched Inception yesterday, and I noted that basically Hans Zimmer created the sound of '90s action suspense blockbusters, mm-hmm. and then recreated exactly how scores sound going forward, up until his Dune score, at least. With Inception and how yeah. everything now sounds like the Inception score. <laughs> yeah, you, without him, there's no womp. Like the yeah, womp or is not there. There's no dun 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 dun. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, those are the big the big two sounds. <laughs> those were the big two sounds. Um, Bad Boys from the jump is loaded with this sound, and it sounds a hell of a lot more like his speed score. 
too. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Yep, yep, yep. And I love all of these scores, and I love all of these people, so I'm not trying to be critical. Like, I no. think that they're fun and, like, sweeping and exciting. Maybe copied a little too much, but, you know, what, mm-hmm. you know. What it was the there? times. It, yeah. it, is, it is interesting, nonetheless. Now, going into production, guess who thought the script freaking stunk? That's right, Michael Bay, Martin Lawrence, and Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great script for me to poop on. Yeah, so yeah. um he hated he called Michael Bay firmly believe firmly called it a true piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean like I, I did see Trapped in Paradise, the other film George Gallo wrote this year uh, this year, and like uh, I, I, it's not impossible. <laughs> the um so during production, Michael Bay, who would I think Michael Bay comes from that James Cameron school. He isn't obviously James Cameron, but he comes from that James Cameron school. If he is all business, he is the head mm-hmm. motherfucker in charge. He does not mm-hmm. mess around. He's a, he's a general. He loves that military crap. Just like, oh, um, yeah. just like, so, um, but, and Bay, not only concerned with the script, he was concerned with, yeah, that's right. Don Simpson. <laughs> Yeah, this guy. <laughs> so during production, an incident took place at a nightclub in the middle of the night. He was having a drink with Simpson and Bruckheimer. Don's telling the story, and he's perched on this tiny stool. All of a sudden, he rolls over onto his back, knocking over the drinks onto the floor. And oh, Jerry no. says calmly, "Well, that's one way to clear a table." Jerry has seen it all. Jerry is just—he's jaded. He's convinced that the days before shooting, it would never even happen at all because of Simpson's right behavior. I watched my career go down the toilet the Saturday before shooting began. Bay said Don came in with forty pages of dictation and slammed the script down and said, "We're taking our names off this project." Oh my god! And Jerry just said, "Don't worry, we'll fix it." During production, on a schedule Bay found terrifyingly short, Bay said, we would be shooting action sequences that would have taken four days to shoot, we would have one. Bruckheimer would say, we can do it, and Simpson would turn to Bay and said, and say, you and me and Michael, you and me, Michael, we're realists, but Jerry, he's out of his fucking mind. <laughs> Nevertheless, Bay said, we would do it in one day every time. <laughs> God, you could, like, distill the cocaine from his sweat. <laughs> yeah, and basically a perfect set of... Simpson Bruckheimer moments. Don's the brilliant cavalier madman. Jerry's the sobering influence. Together, yeah. they're complimentary, interchangeable, indomitable. As Beverly Hills Cop director Martin Brest once said of the pair, Don and Jerry are atomic producers. They're like plutonium. Their energy can either drive a city or destroy it. Oh my god. <laughs> or, as one longtime Simpson Bruckheimer observer said, it's not good cop, bad cop. It's bad cop, worse cop. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes. Michael Bay, known for his sense of humor. That that was a joke. Um, <laughs> he thought that Smith and Lawrence were super funny, funnier than the script. So basically he would set up two cameras 
and let them improvise. For instance, he secretly told Smith to call Lawrence a bitch before the car scene. The whole two bitches in the sea was improvised, as was Lawrence's comment when Leone suggested that he was gay. <laughs> the scene of the convenience store when the clerk puts up a gun to their heads and yells, freeze, mother bitches, is also improvised. Um... They came up with the now you freeze bitch back up with the gun down and tropical fruit bubblicious on the spot. Wow. Good stuff. Um, and then at the end of the film, there's a moment in which Will Smith says, I love you, man, to Martin Lawrence. <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently, according to Michael Bay, Will Smith refused to say it, didn't buy it, and they spent the entire day arguing about it. Holy Bay, shit. probably rightfully so, thought it summed it up the friendship between the cops. Like, <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's the end of the movie. They've been through a lot. They, but we yeah. have to know that they like each other. They each saved each other's lives once. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a fair thing to say. And Will Smith, and, you know, I feel it's this comes down to pure insecurity maybe masculine insecurity for Will Smith. Mm. Um, allegedly. Um, we'll put it that way. Anyway, they argue half the day. Much of the crew is ready to pack it up. Fed up. Fed up Michael Bay was like, fuck it, do whatever you want. And then Will Smith changed his mind and said the line. Oh my whatever. god. Yeah, that is just like a, a power move at that point. Like he's like, okay. Quentin Tarantino said in his book, his latest, his new book, Cinematic Spectacle, Cinematic speculation. Basically, all of directing is is dealing with these actors, and there and how do you deal with them to get what you'd like to see and jump through the hoop, jump through their strange singular hoops yeah, they throw at you. And he's I right. Told you, yeah, oh, totally. I told you about the time where I drove a guy who was like an extra on that um, Sean Penn gangster movie directed by the Zombieland guy. Yeah, Gangster and Squad. Yeah, and weird, how like apparently very weird, and how apparently like Sean Penn would just like direct every scene he was in, and just like take and Ruben Fleischer was just like I can't he, can't deal with this guy, couldn't deal with this guy, he yeah. couldn't handle it. He could, yeah, it's that's true. It'll make or break a movie. <laughs> and do you want to really want to get in a fight with that guy all day no. long and get in a screen yeah, match with Sean him? Sean Penn, a freak. Pick, He's scary. Yeah, pick, pick your fights, man. That guy yeah. would fight you too. Clearly, he would punch you. He yeah, would, he would hurt punch you. you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he doesn't have a temper. Um. Anyway, story of bad boys is detectives, lifelong friends, and Miami police detectives Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett. Will Smith is Mike Lowry. Marcus Burnett is played by Martin Lawrence. They just had the bust of their lives, $100 million in mafia heroin. But in an explosive opening sequence, the police station itself, the secure vault, is robbed of all the heroin it's crazy the leader of the gang is techie cairo french actor who plays antoine fouché good Mm. name fun name um and he is a baddie and you gotta love cairo he knows what he's in yep and you know is he gonna twirl his mustache or his goatee in this 100 percent yeah, yeah. If, there, if there were train tracks in this, in this movie, he'd tie Tia Leone to them. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But then, like, Ebert brought this up in his review. He does do the bad guy thing of explaining his entire plan before just shooting someone. Yeah. Which is, Ebert is correct, stupid trope. 
Yeah. Well, this is a movie littered with those. This is a movie littered with those. So they go on the hunt for the missing heroine. Meanwhile, and they're using their sources. They go to JoJo, former drug guy, now tire guy, played by Michael Imperioli. Yeah. And they go to uh, Max Logan, a uh, beautiful ex-girlfriend of Mike Lowry, uh, played by Karen Alexander. And she's like, oh, I'll keep an eye out. She goes to a party with a guy who seems to be using the heroin from the bust. Yes. She brings along her, weirdly, brings along her photographer friend, Julie, played Very by Taylor. Despite the fact that Karen is a very confident, very open um, sex worker. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's and, very weird. Yeah, and it's and never, everyone's, you know, everyone knows it. And there's no problem with it. But Taylor's character is not. So why bring her? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and also, like, the guy they're going with, I love this, because, like, this actor uh, who he's plays good. the... So he's he really is, good. Um, he doesn't not even have a Wikipedia page. His name is Emmanuel Zareb. He, Eddie oh. Dominguez is the actor. And he's really good in yeah, the role. Yeah, it's like he... Oh, that's, see, this is, like, back when, like, you'd have movies with actors, like, like it's, like, these movies, and, like, uh, I feel like... Even if the movies were bad, they would have actors that popped. It reminds me of like going like if you go back and watch like a Roland Emmerich Emmerich film yeah. from this time. Even if those movies don't make sense, you still have like well, they have like a like a cast of like twenty usually. Yeah, and everyone so like Kevin Corrigan only gets like two scenes in the movie, but he Kevin Corrigan knows is like man, I'm gonna pop. I'm gonna get I'm gonna hit it out of the park with these two scenes, so I'll get noticed and I'll get cast in this 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 and this. Yes, yeah. same thing with like Michael Peri- Imperioli. Same thing with pretty much every like. You know, uh, character actor with a Wikipedia page on this, uh, on this uh, roster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, and that I, and they don't seem to like cast like that anymore because I don't do. I don't know if it's COVID and no crowd scenes or like, I. It's weird. And everyone yeah. talks the same in movies now. They don't have weird people show up to add like a color or a different touch to things. Like we've everyone lo- tells the exact same jokes now. Yeah, which we, is, we've. Lo- Texture has disappeared, and I don't know if that's just like an American problem in general. If that's just it's died out, or if like, yeah, those just aren't the people getting cast anymore for whatever reason. You have to be more savvy now to get cast. Yeah, well, they're also not casting weirdos as much anymore. They're casting just jocks and babes, like yeah. pretty much like nonstop. Or it's like this. It's like either full or the children or... of handsome people. Oh yeah, yeah. Your your Wyatt Russells. You're like. Uh, so she bacons or whatever. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, but it's like it's like the other. They go the other way too, where it's like either it's like yeah, like super perfect people, or it's like a movie like the Florida Project, where it's like I found this person on Instagram. Yeah, like, yeah. Know. Or you're, yeah, you're going the Sean Baker route. You're looking for like completely outside the realm of even like trained actors. Also, there's no like people are not like training as actors. They're like yeah. crap. This gets back to that whole Jeremy Strong thing, and I saw James Gray was really sticking up for him, too. About Good. like, don't like, why disrespect someone who cares about their craft? Like, why, like, why is that a bad thing? Yeah, he treats it like he's it's... not hurting anyone by caring too much about his craft. And it's like you want that. You don't. I don't want every movie to be a smirking motherfucker who doesn't give a shit. Like, I want like a real. 
I want real performances. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and risks. Like what Jeremy Strong does in Armageddon Time is a risk. He's doing a voice. He's like changed his look. Like he's he's it, trying shit, and it will not work for certain people. It just won't. But some people are going to think it's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyway, so they're on the they're on the trail. Basically, what happens is that. Fouché and his crew discovered Dominguez stole the heroin. Fouché is a cold-blooded psycho. He kills Dominguez. He also kills Max. Witnessed by Teo Leone's Julie. And we should know, this is the first time we've seen Teo Leone since Spanglish. (laughs) (laughs) And so our detectives are on the hunt. They track down Julie as a key witness. uh, Because Julie has heard about Mike Lowry. She's looking for Mike Lowry. Mm. Mike is unavailable because he gets beat up because he's on another. So, so they. Yeah. Because everyone's kind of dumb. Joe Pantaleon is like, just go, just go. So yeah. Marcus sure. goes and claims to be Mike Lowry to Julie, who's never met Mike before. Here's the thing. Of course, these guys are an odd couple. Marcus is a kind of neurotic family man who yep. is desperate to get laid but can't because he's like got a family or whatever he's the, the, mike the lowry, wife guy mike lowry is cool guy alert ladies man single guy who <laughs> gets laid sex. non-stop <laughs> yeah professor sex detective sex detective, <laughs> detective mike sex yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so uh comic uh, comic uh, mismatch ensues as Marcus tries to be a player. It's weird. Ebert brings it up in his review as well that there's this entire bit where there's this terrible gay panic scene where <sighs> they're in the bedroom and there's all these pictures in Mike Lowry's bedroom of Mike Lowry. And Ebert was <laughs> like, the bigger question, why does he get so many pictures of himself? <laughs> Deeply weird. Deeply weird. <laughs> like I'm looking around my room. I don't have. Even... I don't. I don't have any pictures of myself. Yeah. I guess I have. I have one like with like family members. I have like. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's not, not just, just like, like solo, me. like throwing a thumbs up or like, uh, like, yeah, like model shots or something. Like photos you'd put on your Tinder page or whatever. So goofiness occurs, Marcus, because he's just a neurotic wasteland. Yeah. Thinks Mike's sleeping with his wife Teresa Randall, and it just it gets it's very silly, and kind of gets to the bottom line of this movie is that the humor and antics don't particularly work. Yeah, but what does work? All of the action set pieces Inc- like are smoking hot. They rule. <laughs> I would love a Trump cut of this. That's just all the car chases. Uh, and... These guys, they're not that funny, but I love their chase. They're sure this chase. <laughs> oh, look at the, look at the cargo boom. I guess um, Will Smith was very, like, he did not want to do the chase scene shirtless. And, and Bruckheimer and Simpson and Bay were like, this is going to make you a fucking star. 
if you do this, you're less. And they were right. And they were right. Like, yeah, this did. This is the thing every, that pushed him. It's in every preview of him running slow motion, shirtless. Like, yeah, that is great because it's not like he he looks like a day. He's he was fine. This it is kind of crazy how Will Smith at this point is kind of like Brad Pitt in. Yeah. Like he doesn't have the charisma in this movie, uh, he, or he does. Like, he does, but you could tell it's like it's so funny because Martin Lawrence has top billing because I think Martin. I think he was a bigger star. Oh, yeah, this, this is Pete Martin. Because Will Smith had basically done like six degrees of separation and he was on Freshman Spiller. Yeah, he had not done waning. any of his blockbuster movies. Mm-hmm. And you see, by this, you're like, yeah, this guy's just, yeah, he's a mega star. The next movie he did was Independence Day. <laughs> like, you know, Man, like, it is so crazy. Like, love or hate Michael Bay, they like take these, like, because they did this with fucking Eddie Murphy, they did this with Tom Cruise. Well, the other thing, too. If they, God bless Carvey and Lovitz, this movie would be utterly forgotten. Oh, if it had yeah. been Carvey and Lovitz. It's so funny. Like, you know what? It's sad. Like, I love John Lovitz. He's like one of the funniest people in the world, in my opinion. He just is not a, he can't, he can't anchor a movie. It just for whatever. It's just, he doesn't have that. He, I don't know. He didn't know that Will Smith was going to be like a top three movie star for the next 20 years. <laughs> after he made this movie like well it's also this movie would be so fucking different if like imagine Dana Carvey running like it just it, it would no it would be it would it would be a lame comedy it would be yeah. it would have done it as well as the ref it would have no, yeah know, it would have been it would have been disappeared it would not have created an entire massive franchise you know <laughs> No, yeah, there wouldn't be a Bad Boys Forever or whatever no. directed in 2020 starring like a 60 year old John Lovitz. No, not at no. all. Um, and yeah, and so the action scenes just pop. Their Bay is just then that's all he cares about. He doesn't care about. He's got juvenile sense. He's got a juvenile sense of humor, mm-hmm. and he doesn't care about any level of like human moments. Yeah, in, this, it, in the film whatsoever. That's like, not his. That's not his forte. He likes he likes these two guys riffing, and he likes to shoot the shit out of these action scenes, and that's how it goes. I mean, and it, like I think the chase scene, the foot race chase scene, is the best mm-hmm. action scene in the movie. But the ending, the climax in the empty airport hangar, replaced the lava factory with empty airport hangar. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> A sign of times to come. Yeah, really is 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 really really exciting. You get the the um. Both of them get a real cool heroes moment. The I like Martin Lawrence just more. You forgot your boarding pass. I think it's a Ooh. great line. Yeah, Will Smith shoot. just gets sup, which isn't as fun, but um, he does he, get the best. He kills. He does the best death in the movie. The the um, I love it too. Like the guy they're doing the drug deal with is like putting this like classic. I think it. I, I forget what car it is, but this classic car into the airplane, and you're like. Yeah, Michael Bay. That's Michael Bay's Chekhov's classic car. It's going to be in a car chase with Will Smith's rad Porsche, like soon. And does yeah. that car does that car chase on the airport tarmac like totally live up to it? Yeah. Yeah. It does. Like, it, yeah it does. Even though it feels like after a while, like, wow, this is like the longest tarmac. Like at this point, they're just they're just yeah. in a liminal space somewhere racing. It's it's really it's really exciting movie. So like I mentioned in the last episode, I saw it opening weekend at a birthday party. When I was thirteen, perfect way to do it. Nineteen ninety-five. Did all and me and my me and the dudes I went with it. Of course, all thirteen-year-old boys. Did we love it? We this was our favorite movie. 
like period that summer like we loved it so much <laughs> like, <laughs> like simpson and bruckheimer like that story told about bruckheimer like i haven't told them what they want to see yet when he was watching the teenagers at the pool i was one of them <laughs> you know, oh my god like, I got caught into this. I was like, these these guys are the best. That jute, that bubblicious scene is so funny. We called each other mother bitches nonstop that year because we thought that guy, the the storekeeper, was so funny. John <laughs> <Like>, Tube, <laughs> Taub. We thought it was so funny and so badass. I got, I bought it. I bought a, I bought a video second I could get a chance to, and. Michael Bay was pretty much ingrained with like Spielberg and like yeah. no, this is Tarantino like your Star Wars and, or something. Like, like this is like as a big... like a direct like one of the first like directors like I could name. I could name their style. Like I and then especially because The Rock was his next movie and we loved The Rock as much if not more oh. than Bad Boys. <laughs> yeah, The Rock. Yeah, I think uh, we've talked about this. Yeah, the Rock is definitely his best film. But he also became like shorthand for the evils of Hollywood. Oh yeah, we have these conversations as well. Oh yeah, because, and like you, yeah, because he is a you know Miami Sleazoid Express. <laughs> oh yeah, and then like I feel like with like my generation, like he was kind of like the first. I feel like I remember him being like the first like director people would dunk on. Yeah, like yeah, like the yeah. Transformers movies, all that stuff. Like like he was like kind of up there with like Uwe Boll and stuff almost as like it, people. Yeah, and like there was that and the other, other, like just absolute shock, like crazy talk to me now. All the people would like talk about how like Spielberg was lame and mainstream. And it was like, no, he is like a first ballot Hall of Fame greatest director of all time. No, he's he's like, yeah, he's like, he's so good at directing that like his perfection almost gets misconstrued as like, vanilla like it is just like because the... he is kind of a vanilla sentimentalist does not mean he's not a fucking genius <laughs> oh no like and i can say i'll you know and i'm not gonna lie i've had like thoughts in the past where i'm like yes ah, spielberg he's always a little like tame but like man the fablemans holy shit yeah patrick has seen <laughs> the fablemans he is he is on the cutting edge of the hot movies <laughs> I, i'm like yeah no he's back i'm a spielberg head baby yeah no, never, never 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 doubt him the king uh, still lives yeah so, Bad Boys was released April 7th, 1995. Uh, the final budget was $19 million. It made $141 million worldwide, 65 in North America, $75 million internationally. A bona fide smash star maker for Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. And like I said, every single 13-year-old that I knew thought this movie rocked and loved it like, oh my god yeah oh dude this is like well this is just 13 year old heroin this is yeah. just like yeah this is injected like into your two, veins two cool guys just kind of wrote like either roasting each other or racing around in cool cars shooting guns yeah. like well and there was nothing like, more you wanted at 13 well and what's beautiful about this movie this is like one of those movies where like if there's a university a universality to it like like everyone in the world now knows who Will Smith is because of bad boys and everyone yeah. like it's it's almost like 
you know, obviously not as universal as like a Titanic, but pretty close. Like, I feel like this is the type of movie where you could go, you could play this in like Mozambique, you could play this in France. Bad could... Boys for Life was a big box office success. The most recent one, they're talk, they're gonna do another. I bet they do another one. Yeah, but... that was also directed by like I think French directors too. Know, well, that's though. why I haven't seen it because of my loyalty to Mr. Bay. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's like, yeah, like, lo- much love to those French people, but, like, I don't know if they're going to have I the want same the, I insanity. Need, I, need the, I need the secret sauce that only Michael Bay brings to the table. Yeah. Um, starting, starting, starting a trend, though, the critics were not particularly kind to bad boys. Oh, come on, <laughs> starting now. a trend for Michael Bay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes is garbage. We should we want to preface that every time we bring this up, but it is an interesting number nonetheless. Forty two percent. The site's critical consensus reads bad boys stars Will Smith and Martin Lawrence have enjoyable chemistry. Unfortunately, director Michael Bay too often drowns it out with set pieces and explosions in place of an actual story. Um, I almost want to say like the medium is the message there the set pieces and the explosions are the story (laughs) yeah that's that's the yeah that's the narrative you're looking for brother um most criticism focuses the fact that uh despite the production value of the film and the ability of the star script did not diverge from generic plot of buddy cop genre films and it is extremely formulaic if you have seen lethal weapon or the beverly hills cop series which is true Man, it does make you wish but, that if, if you could get like a Shane Black to work with Michael Bay. Hmm. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Historically, yeah. He his. He you know he just powers through screen. It just is not his interest. Nah. Like, like Jake Gyllenhaal said, he's like, did I do ambulance to like get to the emotional character pathos of like a night crawler no i did it to hang out the side of a freaking ambulance being chased by a helicopter firing a machine gun that's why you do a michael bay movie yeah you want to be you want to have fun you want to do shit you'll never do ever again yeah you want to do that macho badass bullshit and, yeah. you know, and fuck dude if i was an actor i'd want to do one yes. it'd be cool it'd be like I- like it's like when Adrian Brody did Predators and got all jacked. It's like why? Why not? <laughs> like I want to get like shot and then uh, electrocuted and then exploded. Yeah, I want to do like <laughs> I want to show up like a Michael Shannon or a Steve Buscemi and do a ste- scene stealer in one of these movies. Yes, I want to. Sh- I want to swap uh, Wise with Kevin Corrigan. Yeah. So Bad Boys, massive success, and Simpson and Bruckheimer are back <laughs> of course that wasn't it in 1995 mm. nary a few much later summer starts in may with crimson tide covered last week check it out good app yes Talked all about it um the crimson <laughs> tide production was pretty uh pretty solid don simpson though was beginning to basically disappear from sets oh, no. at this point because he had fallen into a crippling anxieties and insecurities all fueled by his massive drug issues and um Mm -hmm. he was also deeply involved in the um the world of like hollywood madam heidi fleiss and weird kind of s&m's sex stuff and 
I mean, you, I, like fine. we said yeah, it's fine, ages it's fine. ago, yeah. you name it, he did it. Like, right. there's nothing is over the line for him, and yeah. obviously he paid paid for it. Yeah. Um, and around this time period, and we'll cover it a little bit more on our episode on The Rock in 1995. He had moved doc, um, shamed, uh, uh, shamed doctor slash budding screenwriter, Dr. Stephen Ammerman into his pool house. Dr. Stephen Ammerman had developed his own drug issues and thus was, had to leave his main practice. But of course he could still write prescriptions, which helped Don Simpson out immensely. So Don Simpson promised him Hollywood glory in exchange for being basically a drug guy for Don Simpson, of which he had a few. On the night of August, um, I believe it was August of 1995, Stephen Ammerman died of a drug overdose at Don Simpson's house. Oh, God. <laughs> Things went from bad to worse. Yeah. In Simpson Universe. And this was around the time period that Jerry Bruckheimer was beginning to feel that perhaps things had gone too a little too far and they needed to take a look at their partnership. Mm-hmm. But before we reach kind of the end of the line on their partnership and Don Simpson's attempts at rehab. Oh, I should also note he Don Simpson was, you know, continuing his um trajectory of up and down weight loss and gain and plastic surgery, which included by all accounts a penis enlargement. Um uh, buddy. Like I said, you name it. He is I I we'll talk about this more when we kinda get to the end of his story. I he is a monster. And was a did a lot of really really bad things, mm-hmm. but I can't help but feel very sorry for him. I think that yeah. with the, maybe the right help, maybe somebody to talk to to go through these insecurities. Maybe if he had met someone who would love him for who he was, and you know, because everyone was using him too, um, he would not have lived this fireball of a life. I don't know. Yeah. It's like I, yeah, he's, I, and yeah. you know, I guess maybe maybe that's the naive person in me that just doesn't want to believe someone is born a monster, but rather becomes one. Um, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's definitely it's grim, and you know, it's the whole it's the classic like you know, did society do this? Did he do? Is it all? Yeah, it's eat, very you know? yeah. Very, I mean, philosophers have argued over this kind of thing. Since the beginning yeah. of time, Philosoph- <laughs> yeah. philosophers have argued over Don Simpson since. <laughs> yeah, but he's such a fascinating character. You know, yeah. we we're um, heading into the next movie, I promise. But uh, earlier this week, the new Beverly played the film Star Eighty, mm. and, and uh, I was not able to make it, but I watched it that night. A couple of our friends went and saw it. It's been, and Tarantino and Roger Avery covered it on their podcast, and it's kind of bubbled up in the last week and having the zeitgeist and that's basically the story of a true life murder suicide between um playboy playmate dorothy stratton and her husband eric uh, paul schneider and the interesting thing is 
that I think Bob Fosse, who directed Star 80, was so compelled by Paul Snyder. The same way that I'm kind of compelled by Don Simpson. It's like, this is unequivocally like a grim, dark soul who committed terrible crimes. But there is like, what is their deal? Why did they get there? Like, you want to like break it down. Like, what? Why? Why were why were you like this? <laughs> and it's and I can see why that's like an interest. It's so dark. It's so grim to like swim around in that pool. But it is like so fascinating. Like, and I guess that's probably why people watch like true crime shows. Too. Oh, for sure. Well, and you it's know? like, yeah, why? Why are you the way you are? Like, you know, I, I you know, we're both like done. You know, we're. I, I think I'm. We're both people with empathy. We yeah. both know how like we. I feel bad when I hurt someone's feelings or inflict something on someone. And so like, it is like this thing where like you, it's, it is like this. I, I, yeah. It is like, what like, drove you, you to like way? even throw a stapler at someone, yeah, let alone do any of these other crimes. Like that is crazy. Yeah. Like, that's like, and I, and I would not be like, I don't know if like, I think you have to like find some understanding of what leads someone to throw a stapler to try and work as a society to prevent staple throwing, stapler throwing, rather than just necessarily condemn the staple thrower and sweep it under the rug. You gotta get to the root of it. It doesn't mean because clearly it's within society because these people keep returning. <laughs> like, you know, well, yeah, like no like, one has learned anything. It's like, so funny, yeah. Like, you know, especially like in the light of like what Scott Rudin, his whole Michigas, like all these there's well, there's always new Simpsons so on the wing. Don Simpson dies in nineteen ninety-five. Guess who's the king shit producer starting in the early nineties and really reaching their peak around ninety-five and continuing through the early two thousands? Harvey Weinstein. Oh my Nothing god. Changed. Nothing yeah, changed. Nothing. It's it's the same. It's so what it's like. It makes you like wonder to like because it and maybe like I'm s I can't wait to see Babylon. That's gonna be an interesting movie, the new yeah, Damien Chazelle. Because like that is it too. Yeah, because that's about like, yeah, like the creation of Hollywood essentially, right? Or like the very the primordial origins of Hollywood. And like, is this guy with has this always been well, I think you know, I, an I aspect of this world? I, I don't know, know if I've mentioned it on this show. Um, I learned on a podcast this really terrific um, The Secret History of Hollywood you all check it out mm. I listened to their uh, episode on the Universal Monsters so basically the reason Hollywood exists was because they had to get away from Thomas Edison's patent laws he had patented all of his stuff and he was trying to corner the market and not, let, not share any aspect of movie making Wow. So basically, all of these immigrant entrepreneurs moved all the way across the country, and in a time period in which information was slow and movement was slow, they were able to get away with movie theaters and every aspect of the technology and utilize it without being under the eye in New York of Edison's patent police. And that's the entire reason was to escape patent law. They moved to Hollywood. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? That's crazy. That's interesting. Yeah. And, that's like the men, and then that's the mentality that forms Hollywood, too. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's because like, yeah, there's... This is Wild West stuff. This is Get Your Stuff. This is people who are coming in from Ellis Island with not a penny of their name who are yeah. trying to create a name and to create 
tradition for their family because they got forced out of their homelands. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it, it, yeah, it's the it's the fuck you. I need mine. Yeah, exactly. Which it, is the American way. Yes, and that's why they say it's like you know, basically, when you're an adult, you become a conservative because it's like that's when you decide I got to say fuck you. I got to get mine. When you're yeah. a kid, you can have pie in the sky dreams. I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore because people are realizing those dreams are getting slimmer and slimmer. Ooh, man. Cuck. This is the, this would be the time to play Gangsta's Paradise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. So, oh, man. but Don Simpson is this kid, this stocky kid from Alaska, with these crazy, like hardcore religious parents, who sees movies, sees what he sees on screen, and unlike the freaking Fablemans. He goes in with a corrupted, disgusting version of it to get his because he was pushed around and bullied and all that crap. And his because he was an artsy kid in like a logging town in Alaska. Yeah, basically. You know, the, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. This is like the city of bullies, probably. Yeah. And so you're this short, stocky kid who's into like stories. What do you think? What, how many lockers do you think his ass got thrown into? Oh, dude, yeah, no, he's, yeah, he has, like, he's renting one out. He lives in one, probably. Yeah, like, <laughs> no, I prefer this toilet for the swirlies, you know? Yeah, no, this is, yeah, this is the one people don't use for number two, please. <laughs> yeah, so, oh. but that doesn't excuse his crimes. No! Either. It's just, it's just trying to break down what this all means, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, and, like, yeah, and, like, maybe, like, how do we prevent, yeah, World, how do you make stuff? Simpsons. How do you how do you basically when a kid shows they're like an artsy kid, how do you foster that and tell them, yeah, you should that's something worthwhile. Yeah. Don't say you'll never make money at that or that's feminine or you know, all sorts of things that he probably hurt. That yes. made him this way. Don't don't do that to kids. Speaking oh, of teaching kids oh. to gangsters paradise. <laughs> Mr. Tambourine man. Yes. Simpson and Bruckheimer were not done in 1995. In August, August 11th, 1995, mind you, I was heading into that year. I was heading into that would be nary a couple months before I had it was going into eighth grade. Mm. And when I got back to school, guess what soundtrack people were listening to and guess what movie people were talking about? That's right. The third and final Simpson and Bruckheimer picture of 1995, Dangerous Minds, directed by John N. Smith, who I did have to look up. I was not particularly familiar with, and I have not seen any of John N. Smith's other films. Um, Canadian director out of Montreal, Quebec, um, and looks like did had outside of Dangerous Minds. And a film called The Cool Dry Place that had Vince Vaughn in it from 1998, uh, which I never saw. Surprisingly enough, because Vince Vaughn, 1998. I mean, I, I was a Vince Vaughn fan in 1998. Man, <laughs> I've, I've Vince Vaughn bracket. I'm going to put that out I there. I am still, still a Vince Vaughn fan. I'm, I, a Vaughn, I, I'm in the Vaughn yeah, camp. I'm Team Vaughn. Yeah, me too. But uh, yeah, so I have not seen – he mostly worked in Canada, basically, John and Smith. And I don't – it's interesting how I don't know how like he was recruited for this job, other than the fact that perhaps this movie feels like it could be a Canadian TV movie. <laughs> Ooh. 
Uh, screenplay by Ronald Bass, who's an interesting guy. What? Uh, okay. Ronald Rain- Bass has written Rain Man. That's it. Guards of Stone, Sleeping with the Enemy, Joy Luck Club, When a Man Loves a Woman, Waiting to Exhale, My Best Friend's Wedding, Stepmom, What Dreams May Come, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, Snow Falling on Cedars. Whew, down the line, a ton. A ton that's, of movies. That is like such a fascinating Uber. Like Joy Luck Club and Waiting to Exhale. Like also, um, graduate of the Harvard Law School, practiced entertainment law for 17 years. Ooh, yeah. No, he went to or diving in on um screen and becoming a Academy Award winning screenwriter. Wow, he like yeah, he definitely bullied a young version of Chris O'Donnell in Scent of a Woman. Yeah, so <laughs> this is really weird. According to Wikipedia, under the section The Ronettes, small controversy has risen over Bass's use of his assistants to help him write screenplays. What is common for screenwriters to employ assistants to help them research and type? He employs six or seven mostly female assistants that one journalist dubbed the Ronettes. According to Bass, his assistants helped him research and also critiquing his scripts. They enabled him to write, revise, and polish a comparatively large number of screenplays each year. Now, there's been no nothing criminal in that. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's weird, though. Am I right? It's a it's to a summer esque like, situation, but like even weirder. But to have it's like, like seven female assistants as a screenwriter. Yeah, like, that's odd. Well, then you look at his like oeuvre too. It's like yeah, the Joy Love Club. When a man loves a woman, waiting to exhale. My best friend's wedding. Stepmom. How Stella got her groove back. These are like very like feminine geared films. Yeah, and he and also like he's writing like three or four in a year. Yeah, that he's getting credit for. So it seems to me he's he's utilizing a lot of assistance. It's wild. I don't know. But interesting yes, nonetheless. Yeah. I hope he, gave, he he helped them out on the back end. Um, this film was based on the uh, nonfiction book My Posse Don't Do Homework by Luann Johnson. Interesting. Interesting. Compelling. Yeah, um, <laughs> trenchant, trenchant, trenchant. Uh, soundtrack score by Wendy and Lisa. Like I mentioned, this soundtrack was a sensation. Oh, and mostly said. due to the fact Coolio's gangsters. Coolio featuring LV. Got to um, got to got to mention that. Um, the absolutely sensational blockbuster hit, Gangsters Paradise. Uh, number eighty-five on Billboard's greatest songs of all time list. Uh, Honestly, uh, fair. The why not? Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. he won a Grammy for best rap uh, solo performance. He won an MTV Video Award for best rap video and best video from a film. Um, the song it, it absolutely everywhere. Music video famously features Michelle Pfeiffer in her leather jacket, turning the chair around and getting in the face of um, Antoine Fuqua and kind of a or not. Uh, Pardon me, Antoine Foucault. Coolio, Antoine Foucault's on my mind because he directed the Gangsta's Paradise music video. 
Whoa! Go back to, go back to the propaganda. Guys. <laughs> uh, Coolio unfortunately passed away earlier this year, and huh. uh, it Gangsta's Paradise re-entered the top 100 singles chart in October of this year at number 55. Um, and for all you weird fans out there, maybe I would say a top five Weird Al parody in Amish Paradise. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's easily like in his yeah top. Like I'd say that's up there with um, trying to think of like my favorite Weird Al oh, song. I guess I mean, Eat It. Yeah, Eat It. I mean, my favorite Weird Al song is his Devo take "Dare to Be Stupid" off of the album "Dare to Be Stupid." Ooh, I, it has a line that I like really inspired. I think everything that I find funny. In my now that I think about it, it might be like the yeah, ground zero for the, my humor. And um, <laughs> he sings a he sings a line. He goes, "Put your head in a microwave and get yourself a tan." And I thought it was so stupid and funny the image of somebody putting their head in a microwave just to get a tan. As like a six year old, I was like, "That's the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life." Oh, that whips, yeah, yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and. Yeah, Gangsta's Paradise um, appeared in up to 2019 Sonic the Hedgehog in the trailer. Um, and apparently it is also in Pain and Gain, directed by Michael Bay. <laughs> oh man, we're home. We're back. Uh, the cast of Dangerous Minds is led by Michelle Pfeiffer as Luann Johnson. We haven't, I, we haven't seen Michelle, I don't think, since Frankie and Johnny. Um much more recently, though, Cobb himself, George DeSunza, is back as Hal. Cobb! Uh, Courtney B. Vance, the great Courtney B. Vance is in it. Uh, Robin Bartlett is in it. Um, and then a cast of uh, young young actors. Uh, first and foremost, I think, got to shout out Wade Dominguez, who plays Emilio Ramirez in the film. Kind of the lead bad boy mm -hmm. of it. Um, really compelling presence, I thought. <laughs> You get a sense that this was going to launch him. Be like, yeah, exactly. And it's funny because, like, on one hand, uh, is he a 28-year-old man? Yes. Clearly 28 playing a high schooler? Sure. Is sure. he, like, still compelling? Yeah, he's a good He's a good, he's a good act. He's he's a cut above the average yeah, uh, kid he, in this movie. He's got, a, he's got a cool look. He's really compelling. Unfortunately, um, he passed away due to AIDS just a couple of years after Dangerous Minds oh came God. out in 1998, and uh, boy, that's yeah. I was very sad because I was like, I saw him, and I'm like this guy's popping. Who is this? And I look, you know, look him up, and I'm like, oh man, that sucks. He was only in five movies. And... That's such a bummer because yeah, this is a hundred percent the movie that would have uh, that would have launched the career. He'd be yeah. around still. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And he was in the uh, REM's "Losing My Religion" music video. Really oh. interesting. Wow. Uh, we can find out uh, the Ed. Who directed the Losing My Religion music video? <laughs> None other than Tarsum Singh, who went on to direct The Sale of American History X, who wow. is also part of that, of, if I'm not mistaken, the propaganda, or propaganda universe. The Fall? The guy who directed The Fall is part? That is crazy. <laughs> yeah, and he also, yeah, I mean, you know, tons of commercials down the line, like, this is this is how you do it, folks. That's <laughs> just how you do it. Yeah, um, man. In, the 90, in 1990, at least, that's how you do it. Yeah, the, it is. Yep. So, 
It's a great video. I, I remember being oh, found it very yeah. compelling. Uh, basic story is, I mean, you've seen it before, folks. A white person is mm -hmm. sent to a school that is mostly filled with people of color who are economically from the different from the lower end of the spectrum. Yeah. Troubled kids heading toward perhaps a troubled future. And does she maybe change some minds? Some dangerous minds? Mm. Yeah, she does. Um so unlike bad boys. I never saw Dangerous Minds, despite the fact that everyone saw Dangerous Minds that summer. Uh, and I, from the trailer, like I liked Gangsta's Paradise like anybody would, but from right. the trailer, I get the stench of like I don't think I'm gonna like this movie. Yeah. Oh wait, you weren't uh, you weren't uh, tricked by the wiles of George Desundra. <laughs> well, I think this movie has like a very like suburban parents like. Yeah, that's right. That's what these, like, conservative, like, these kind of movies, good conservative bent to it. Like, yeah. some Bruckheimer movies. Well, it, well do. it does have, like, my least favorite trope in any movie where a, uh, a uh, a white person uh, shows a bunch of young people of color how, actually, my music's pretty cool. Like, uh, yeah. a little guy called Bob Dylan, he's actually the best guy ever and you're Such a, so, yes. I worked at a record store for years man that is the most boomer shit that, that. and I say that as someone who saw Bob Dylan no. like four oh, months I, ago I but, literally no I love Bob Dylan yeah. I, he's great but it's like fuck like if these kids don't like Bob Dylan it's fucking fine who cares yeah, it's fine it's fine fuck Bob off. Dylan yeah. Bob Dylan is not losing sleep over that yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I don't think like it's just like anytime or it's like you know yeah it's like oh wow Bobcat's actually pretty cool like it's like it just does it just never rings true like it's, I know it's like you want you want to hear some real music this is Leonard Skinner it's like no. yeah exactly I mean no it's no. like and look it, it's real music for you and that's fine I'm gonna listen Jen to my... it's like Jen um because her parents are a little bit younger than mine are like mm -hmm. she did not grow up with the Beatles Oh, interesting. It's like a constant presence. Excuse mm -hmm. me, I got all stuffed up here. Um, whereas my dad, Beatles are the be all end all. Mm -hmm. It begins and ends with the Beatles. And so I grew up with a incredibly steady, healthy diet. The Beatles. Right. Know them well. I started dating Jen. She's like, I don't actually know this. I'm like, what? You don't know the Beatles? Well, who gives a shit if you don't know the Beatles? Yeah, like, exactly. It's fine. I like them. I would recommend them, but they might not be for you. <laughs> like, yeah, you know. they're great. And it's like, and I think it's just like, it's kids are going to push back against that stuff naturally. And the fact that this movie really doesn't have any pushback just doesn't. It's like, well, this like, movie is a simplistic TV movie. Oh, dressed up sure. as a big budget Brockheimer Simpson movie with a huge star. Oh my God. Star. Yeah. This a huge this, star yeah. who clearly thought that they had a shot at winning an Academy Award with this role. Mm, yeah, this is nominated. I'm surprised she wasn't nominated, despite the fact I don't think it's any like it's it's fine. Yeah, we don't even really there's get... nothing to write about, nothing to write home I mean, about. Character script is it doesn't have enough depth. Well, what's to... interesting is like we don't get like any like even though there are like these little moments that like we talk about like the husband that left her, this and that, like, and we get that like revelation at the very very end of the movie. It's at the very end. Yeah. Yeah, but there's like yeah, none of these characters are really given that much of an interior life. Nobody, even nobody's real. Nobody's real. 
Nobody no. in this movie's real. No. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, All right. So basically, it's the story of Luann Johnson, former Marine, divorcee. See, I had a, I have a pitch, I have a pitch, I had a pitch for John. We're like, this movie should have been like, there's a local tough bullying these kids, and Michelle Pfeiffer goes in and just fucking destroys an evil gang lord. Yeah, it's like, like just make it a canon film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like have her have like Bronson's bazooka from Death yeah. Three or something like that. Have like, yeah, George Desundras her like wise cracking assistant, like he's constantly smoking. Pfeiffer is, Pfeiffer is loose. Again, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, like dangerous mind sounds like a canon title, yes. like yes. like a, for one of their movies, even. But it's not. Yeah, it's that's not. The, that's <laughs> movie where uh, Sylvester Stallone plays a psychopath that hunts down even worse psychopaths. Well, yeah, you, you, <laughs> yeah. Like if you're gonna watch something, like check out Tom Berenger's movie, The Substitute, where he's just an evil substitute, like busting heads. <laughs> he's you know? a bad man. <laughs> Like that's or Jim Belushi and the principal. Like, yeah, don't watch Jim Belushi and Homer and Eddie. Not a good movie. I'm, I'm honestly a little surprised, and this might be his like sentimental streak that Don Simpson had any patience for even the pitch on this movie. Yeah, like it's a little counter programming for them, I guess, but at the same time, it's like I can't, I, I could the Coke feel like that's boring, it's boring. Well, like, I think I think he was. I, think, I bet he was drawn in by like a marine, uh, and then uh, like, oh, what if she teaches the kids kung fu, and that's how she gets them? I know. Jeez, that's yeah. fucking insane. That's like. All I could think of it is like Elvis doing kung fu when she was doing the all right, man. <laughs> yeah, like... I, I think I, I think about uh, the Darius Miles. There's like an article that Darius Miles wrote about his life in like the NBA. It's a great article, but like one part of the article is um he like went to like Shaquille O'Neal's house and they were watching a movie and he realizes that the movie was just a Shaquille O'Neal, like, something he, like, had a friend direct, and it's, like, him fighting, like, professional stunt, like, people. Like, he made his own kung fu movie for his own personal joy to watch. There is a level of rich that we do not. Yep. We do not know. Yeah, it's like that, yeah, the the, the hiring Terry Notary, so you can beat him up, Rich. (laughs) Luann Johnson, former Marine divorcee, shows up at uh does he even have in school yeah it is school. It, like school yeah, yeah. it is the weirdest so she shows up she's like hands the resume to somebody like i need a job i heard this is there's openings here and like you're hired go to this class it's called in this area called the academy school seems to be huge it seems to be a compound mm-hmm. it seems to have like a rich kid portion and a poor kid portion yeah. um the academy is where they send the tough, sullen teenagers from lower working income, working class backgrounds. Yeah, who seem to be bussed in from forty miles away. If the opening credits tell us anything, yeah, they're like bussed in from like demolition man worlds. Yeah, the guy who got her the job is, of course, her f- friend. How? Who's played yeah. by George Desunza, who it seems like him and George and his wife and Michelle Pfeiffer and her asshole ex-husband, like, drank wine together or something yeah. like that. I don't know how any – their friendship is insane. George Desunza hates his job. He's a history teacher. Hates his job. Hates the kids. 
and smokes in class. It is so it's much tremendous. smoking. He it's smokes incredible. He's, and if you remember, if you watched Crimson Tide last week, he doesn't seem like the healthiest man in the world. No. You're, and I thought they were going to kill him. Like they kept yeah. alluding to the fact you, you think you're you're so unhealthy. All you do is eat garbage and smoke cigarettes. He, he's like, shut he, up! I'll have my. I have, these are the things I love the most. And it's like he's like coughing. You send him up, yeah. Send him up the thief of Hearts Hill. We have a dead man on our hands. <laughs> you're holding back down that hill, and you're running away like Indiana Jones. <laughs> no, it's so weird. And so he gets her the job. Students. <sighs> are like really skeptical they call her white bread yeah uh and she wears like a you know school mom dress mm-hmm. for her first day she learns a thing or two next day yeah she's got that leather jacket she's yeah, got her cowboy like, boots huh? she writes yeah, i am a marine <laughs> that's gonna do anything like yes. is this oh this is like a like a sad recruitment drive for kids who got no other options oh that's simpson that's simpson mindset right there yeah, simpson that's, mindset that just, and you get the leather jacket you tell them you're a marine she teaches them karate why who knows yes uh, but that gets out the boy but that gets out of the craw principal george grandy played by courtney b vance only person there who hates the students more than george Dezunza. Oh yeah, dance. just a total apathy towards any every student. Yeah, it's like we found out there was an arson at the academy portion of this school. Uh, who said it? The principal. <laughs> yeah, he's done with it's, this shit. He was like, yeah, he has glass. Like Courtney Vance does play him with like glassy dead eyes. This is a yeah, man. It's really whose soul who's left like, voided him. Who's also a fiery, exciting actor. <laughs> like, oh, an incredible actor. He's so yeah, good. One, and, of, like, one of the better actors around. He's like the he's like uh the best part of the uh, that uh OJ miniseries. Yeah, he, and which was there's a lot of fun stuff in the OJ yeah. series. Yeah, see, so getting Junior play OJ Simpson insane. <laughs> she's she our methods eh, they might not be the typical methods. Mm. Uh, does she play it by the typical rule book? I don't think so. But hey, is she getting if... results? Damn right. Damn right she is. Well, yeah. What if we used homeboy as the noun in a sentence? Yeah. Oh boy, like finding your way in. Like you know who you know who did rap first? Mr. Tambourine Man himself, Bob Dylan. Yeah, Let's talk about drugs. Bob... <laughs> actually, Bob Dylan's the original hip hopper. That but is. You know who? You know who might be even more hip hop than Bob Dylan? Dylan Thomas. What the poet? Hell? Irish poet. <laughs> yeah. That is such a. Fucking like Welsh poet, Welsh poet. Pardon me. That um, is some boomer ass boomers. That is well, just the funniest yeah. thing is I never thought that there would be a dopier use than "Do not go gentle into that good night" than "Interstellar." We found it. Yeah, we found folks, it. We have, in dangerous minds. We found it. <laughs> Somehow makes that seem like subtle poetic. and yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, actual poetic. Yeah. Oh my and god. I think, um, folks, let's put a moratorium on that. You got to insert a poem. Into your movie, you find another poem. There are other poems. Mm-hmm. It's very, yeah. uh, very basic. I think yeah. uh, there's a rule, rule for you. <laughs> don't, don't reuse that poem for another hundred years. 
Yeah, you're good. You can put that in the vault. Put that in the vault with that Robert Rodriguez film he directed for that, like, what was it? Like a tequila company, a whiskey Wouldn't company? that be funny if the <laughs> Dylan Thomas poem is in that movie that we'll never see? <laughs> yes, that our grandchildren, they're waiting for it. <laughs> and they're going to groan. Oh, don't give me this boomer crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when they're in, when they're on Elysium watching that. <laughs> yeah, I hope my kids are on Elysium. Yeah, I, hope, I hope my kids make, I hope my grandkids make Elysium too. Uh, um, Jody Foster, if you're listening, please let our grandkids go on Elysium. Please let us please. go to Elysium. <laughs> yeah, please. <sighs> There's ups and downs to Luann's journey. Raul, Raul, she takes him to dinner. Oh, I got it. This classic scene. Classic scene. She takes him to a high-end restaurant. He does it. He's like, nice serve chicken here. Like, it's... Yeah. And uh, Raul, snooty... um, you might remember, he is played by Rinaldi Santiago, who is in Con Air. Oh, Rinaldi's yeah. Con Air. That's he has a very interesting role in Con Air. Very interesting yeah. role in Con Air. We'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, the waiter was played by Baron Munchausen. John Neville. It's fucking insane. Like, that's his cameo in this movie. Weird, what a weird movie this is. It, yeah. He's like fifth built. It, it's it so is weird. wild. So, Luann ingratiates herself in multiple kids' lives. Probably crosses way too many lines as a public school teacher. Like, she goes yeah. to her houses. She's like... And all of them have certain problems. Um, Emilio has to keep up his tough guy side. She does not get the rules of tough guy gang behavior or whatever. I don't know. I don't even think John Ronald Bass gets the rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, yeah, hopefully one of the Ronettes did. I don't know. Yeah, but unfortunately, Emilio was killed. Spoiler. Mm-hmm. You know, but the writing's on the wall, man. There's nothing surprising in this movie whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and Luann's like, man, I, I quit. <laughs> Yeah, this is hard. This is hard. I quit. Never I'm mind. tired. I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go take a nap. I'm a divorcee. Yeah. I should be drinking rosé right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I should be drinking out of that giant wine glass from the Amy Schumer <laughs> sketch. Yeah. Uh, but guess what? In a very white squalp type moment, mm-hmm. the kids say, no don't quit on us. We didn't quit on you or some bullshit. Yeah, yeah. we love you or something. We love you, Luann. You rule. And, yeah, uh, you're a Marine. You're a Marine and you're our favorite. And she's overwhelmed by it and she decides to stay on for another year at Weird School. And she walks <laughs> off into the sunset with George DeSunza to the to the tones of Coolio once again. <laughs> you know, every time something serious or dramatic happens in this movie, the opening notes of Gangsta's Paradise play. It is. I, I mentioned a movie I saw with Gary Busey that was called Eye of the Tiger a few weeks ago that plays Eye of the Tiger by Survivor nonstop in it. Same level. Same level in this movie. It's I mean, nonstop. And one thing I noticed in the credits, it's sampled from a Stevie Wonder song. So Stevie Wonder got songwriting credit on Gangsta's Paradise. So Stevie Wonder, 1995. Nice little bonus payday. Ooh, between the Spike Lee movies and this, he's, was, he's, uh, he's bringing I was in talking, bucks. I was talking to Jen, and we were talking about conspiracy theorists and that kind of stuff. And my favorite conspiracy is that Stevie Wonder could see, and he's a liar. That's funny. that's my favorite. That's my favorite conspiracy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, we need, 
more people who are fascinated with those kind of conspiracies. <laughs> like the stupid ones. <laughs> the I love stupid, it. The stupidest conspiracies. Available. Like something that doesn't like affect the world either way. Like who cares if he sees or doesn't yeah, I see? Go, I want to go to the guy who's got like the Charlie Day like chart behind him. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like this goddamn guy could see. <laughs> like he's constantly showing you YouTube videos of like Stevie Wonder oh, like, I watched catching this, things. I watched yeah, I watched this video of Stevie Wonder at a concert where like the mic fell on the floor and he knew where to pick it up. He was, and I was like, hmm, got me kind of convinced. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think he just has the daredevil thing. He can just like super, he, his yeah. hearing is so well, he can just he's like echolocate. He's, 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 he's done a million concerts. He's got, I, yeah. Come on. But it's so he's done it all. It's no, it really, is. it's really, really funny nonetheless. It, it is the silliest, funniest. And that's like, that's like better than QAnon. Like, yeah, you, no, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's benign. If you're going to like, yeah, if you're going to lead into conspiracy, do something that's completely harmless and stupid. And yeah. Funny. <laughs> just be like, like, yeah, like, yeah, like Paul Walter Hauser is just in a fat suit. He's a thin man, really. That, like, being, yeah. that being said, the CIA clearly had something to do with the chief case assassination. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> And the guy who should pull the trigger, Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, who could see. Yes. Seventeen-year-old <laughs> Stevie Wonder did. Yeah, got me feeling superstitious. The writing is Ooh, on the wall. Wow. Oh, Patrick, that's uh, poetic. There's, there's some poetry. <laughs> yeah, you know who the real poet, the real hip hopper is A little guy Steve. named Stevie Wonder. The yeah, murder of JFK uh, is Stevie Wonder. So. Yeah, you know, we've we've brushed through because there's nothing really surprising or any real like mm-hmm. dramatic choices made in this movie that made me like leap out of my seat and say, "Oh, that's interesting." Um, nah. The movie, thankfully, is 99 minutes. Yeah, drift, it, it drifted by. <laughs> I, did, I did have like a revelation watching this in that the I feel like the main problem with these type of films is it's never. It's always from the teacher's perspective. Yeah. That's kind of a weird... It should be from the... like Because this is a movie... I feel like this is a movie more for kids than for, like, adult. I mean, I guess it is kind of like this fantasy of, like, oh, well, I could go in there and, like, train some tough kids and, like, stuff like that. But, like... I'm trying I think, to think like, if I have seen a movie in this storyline that I like. It's... It's tough. The closest I can think of, like, I think Freedom Riders did a slightly better, but that's because that movie at least did a little more, like, gave a little more depth to the kids. But even mm-hmm. then, it's just, it's, it's really tricky. It's a hard, I like the ones that are deconstructions of it. Like, I really like Half Nelson and Detachment. Those are good movies. Yeah, yeah, kinda, yeah, yeah. They like, kind of, like, poke holes in that myth. Yeah, like Half Nelson, the white savior who thinks he's a white savior, a liberal white savior, comes in. It turns out he's a total method. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he's a dude he's, with he a horrible might, drug problem. He's the most fucked up person there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that is like, yeah, oh God, what are, what are the great Ryan That's Gosling good, performances? Good movie. good movie. Yeah, I like that movie a lot. I think like this this trope actually works in like sports movies best because oh, you have true. something like a goal. You're heading mm-hmm. toward like you have to win a game or something like Wildcats. And I feel like everyone would like fulfill Wildcats. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who can forget Cinema's Wildcats? Who, who can forget Wildcats except for us? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think like football. Yeah, like a movie like um, I can remember the Titans. Yeah, where it's like okay, Denzel Washington's essentially playing a teacher, but he's a coach, mm-hmm. and just put together a ragtag you know group. Yeah, you know, the 
win a game or something. Yeah, you're I Coach remember that Carter's. Name, I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, I mean, but your those blurry roads. Yeah, those um, those all kind of those work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. better than this. Like maybe it's just I'm not. <laughs> like movies about the like reporters and movies about teachers. I know these are supposed to be the inspiring people, and I'm just like, I don't know, man. Not very well, entertaining. <laughs> There's not I much mean, cin- think... not much cinematic about a classroom. Like maybe Martin Scorsese could do it. <laughs> I don't know. I think like I mean I think there's ways to do. It. I think part of the problem is that like I think like s- like sports is less like you're making less assumptions about the people. Like when you're making a movie about a, a teacher that's helping kids, it's kind of like saying I know how to make the turn these people from stupid to smart. Yeah, like, there's, or, like, good, there's, or yeah. from bad to good. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's like a less of that in a movie about sports because it's like you're making your it's like a a, more of like a a math problem. Like, how do I make these guys bad baseball, take them from bad baseball players to good baseball players? Like, it's it's less of a yeah, it's less of a critique on the individual. Well, yeah, it's like it's impossible. It's like, yeah, it's like, how do I turn them into good students? I don't know. And is that even cinematic? Yeah, and what does that mean even? Yeah, who knows? Yeah, yeah. I want to watch. Yeah, I'm so excited. I get to watch them take a test. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. The SATs. Cool. I mean, the SATs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, God bless John and Smith, but this is very, like, there's nothing. There's He's not Michael Bay. There's yeah. nothing really, like, Michael Bay would have fallen asleep on this movie, though. But it's, yeah, this could have been, it, like, a TV movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a TV movie, basically, with a big star at its heart. Yeah. But weirdly enough looking back on this i mean i told you all that song and when i got back to school this movie made 179 million dollars at the u.s box office like it's like how like three men and a baby's the highest yeah. grossing movie of 87 it's just, just different one times like, just different damn. times man it was it says it was budgeted at 23 million it was an absolute like home run hit that everybody i remember feeling at the time i was the only person who didn't see it like mm-hmm. everybody had seen it, everyone loved it. And watching it now, it's like, huh. Um, Rotten Tomatoes is trash, but thirty-three <laughs> percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, critical consensus rates rife with stereotypes that undermines its good intentions. Dangerous Minds is too blind to see that the ones it hurts are the audience. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch! Um, Rude. Ebert called the film less than compelling. So the yeah, truth would have been watered down to appeal to white audiences, illustrated by a substitution of Dylan songs for rap songs. <laughs> Although he said Pfeiffer's acting made the film fairly entertaining. Ebert, correct him undo. <laughs> yep, uh, hit the hit the nail with the hammer. Yeah, yeah, and but for somehow. Somehow, some reason, in August of 1995, due to a smash hit single and soundtrack, it caught the eye of, like, everyone. Everyone was into it. Um, Did not get nominated for any uh, Oscars, but did it get nominated for some MTV Movie Awards? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, you know, I think it's just because this movie featured gangsters. Parent, I think that is just yeah, like it had like young people in it, kind of young, supposedly yeah. young people in it. 
but it was nominated for Best Movie, Best Female Performance, Most Desirable Female. What an award that is. Um, yeah. And Best Movie Song. It lost Best Movie Song. Who did it lose to? We got to, okay, quick research. It lost to Sitting Up in My Room by Brandy from the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, a song I don't um remember. No, I don't. I mean, also like, nominated that year. How about Seals Kiss from a Rose? Whoa! Or U2's Hold Me, Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, both from the Batman Forever soundtrack. Good gravy. Man, Brandy Good. just... Brandy swoop in like a yeah. uh, real like underdog move right there. <laughs> that's some yeah, that's and, some um, Adrian Brody for the pianist stuff going in, on. In case you were wondering too, uh, Alicia Silverstone won for Clueless for most desirable filmmaker or female. <laughs> that I year, mean, I guess good for her. <laughs> I guess. Sure, I guess. Sure, sure, she's incredibly proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, has it next to her Tony? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. God only knows. Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of inexplicable. It's it. Uh, there was a television spinoff show mm-hmm. that uh, in 1996 that lasted for like one season, 17 episodes, with Annie Potts from Ghostbusters as Luann Johnson. Huh. Um, never saw it. Just like I had never seen this movie. <laughs> but, yeah, I could see why that didn't and, last that long. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird. This movie was a huge sensation, and I think the only cultural remembrance of it whatsoever is Gangster's Paradise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but listen, man, 179 million for Dangerous Minds. 141 million for Bad Boys. We had 157 million for Crimson Tide. Wow. Are Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer back? Yep. Oh, yeah, you better believe it. But yep, co- four, what's that? I was going to say, Cocaine Mountain has been restocked. Cocaine Mountain is back. Yeah, the they powder had, is fresh. They had a, in a bunch of, in, in May of 95, they announced even more items. Angels of Eden, a screenplay by Simpsons friend Carol Wolper. Zone of Silence, the John Didion. Joan, or John, John, Don, Joan, Didion, uh, uh, UFO picture, oh. a Navy SEALs movie from Dan Gordon, who'd written Passenger 57 and Wyatt Earp, called Rogue Warrior, a Robert Town script called Witness to the Truth, a title, <laughs> true story about the inner workings of the FBI, high profile projects like uh, from Ron Bass. Lorenzo Semple Jr. and David Milch, and also announced in this package, The Rock. Ooh. The year to come was to be the best in Simpsons' entire career. We're speaking of 1995 here. It would also be his last. And we'll leave it at that. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Tommy Wiseau in the room, what a story. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, what a story. <laughs> Next week on the show, we return to the world of Scott Scott and we return to a movie the Academy Academy has covered before. Of course, we are talking about Tony Scott's The Fan. 
Yes. Yes. Bobby. Bobby. And we'll keep it a secret for now, but perhaps our one and only guest of Scott Scott will be joining us for the fan episode. And oh. you all will you all will be appreciative of this guest for this for this particular episode. Oh yeah, you're gonna like it, folks. If you think back, if you're a, if you're a longtime Academy Academy fan, and, and uh, you've listened to a few of these episodes, and you listen to our Wesley Snipes season, I think you might have an idea who this might be. So. <laughs> ben is available to rent uh, for like you know three bucks or whatever through most services. I believe the Blu-ray has a director's cut. I might look Ooh. into it. We'll see if we have time. Yep. Might have to go to uh, a local uh, rental store. Yeah, if you, if you have one in your neighborhood. If not, yeah, check it out. Um, yeah. You know, whatever service you want to support. A week after that, we return to the world of Ridley Scott with G.I. Jane. Ooh, interested in seeing this one. Interested. I have like... not seen this one. Yeah. And uh, which is currently available to rent, or if you are a Showtime subscriber, it is available on Showtime right now. But that's it might not be in two weeks, so watch it early. I guess we're giving you an early heads up <laughs> uh, if you have Showtime. Uh, if you feel that you're left on the edge of your seat and you're just dying for more juicy Simpson Bruckheimer info. Check yes. in with us at the Academy Academy Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Acad Acad. Unless, you know, Elon Musk nukes <laughs> Tor- Tor- Torpedoes Twitter in the next week. <laughs> yeah. Unless we get like a wild hair up our butt and decide to, you know, pay for that $8 subscription and change our name to like, you know, yeah. uh, Jerry Bruckheimer some... and Don Simpson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Guys. We're, we're, gonna torpedo, another... we're gonna torpedo their business by announcing Dangerous Minds Part Two. Yeah, <laughs> Dangerous Minds X Pirates of the Caribbean. You gotta teach yeah. these pirates. So, but if it's still around, we'll be there. I just posted a photo of Bruckheimer and Simpson looking particularly 1992. Ooh. So, <laughs> so for Patrick, I'm Don. We'll see you next week on the Academy Academy. And let's just say, uh, this episode, it is accomplished! That's, that's 1,000% true. (laughs) Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you Though I know that evening's empire has returned into sand Vanished from my